Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got Romans open. In chapter 15, verse 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about joy today, and I have a feeling that verse is going to come up again. That was my guess. My <laughs> my guest is John Afonso. She's a worship and community life pastor at Salem Covenant Church right here in the Twin Cities in New Brighton, Minnesota. She normally appears with Rick Matson when she comes in, but she is without Rick today. And I'm awfully glad to get you all to myself today. <laughs> Thanks, And I'll Bill. have to get Rick in too by himself someday. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That'd be fun. <laughs> so we are in need of joy more than ever right now, I think, with what's going on in the world. And it's just a great reminder that we should be living this joyous life because we know how the story finishes. Yeah, and it joy is really meant to be part of our relationship with God. The more deeply connected with God we are, the more joy we should be experiencing. And so it's I kind of think of it as this birthright of the Christian <laughs> faith. I like that. You know, it's this thing given us. And so if you are in the midst of the world I'm in the midst of, it is easy to kind of lose the focus and to feel like things are just spiraling out of control. You can feel depressed. You can feel sad. You can feel crushed. You can feel discouraged. And all of those feelings are very real, and those are not wrong, but those are not enough if you're living with Jesus Christ. Joy is supposed to be this river that flows beneath all of those emotions, stabilizes all of those emotions, and it's where we return those other things happen, but we return to joy because mm-hmm. it's at the heart of our life with God. I mean, even being happy is not the same as joy because <laughs> you right. can have a moment of happiness, but when you walk away from that moment, you have something much bigger, which is your right. joy of the Lord. Yeah. Well, in fact, um, joy is really this, the way it's defined sort of theologically is this intense satisfaction this intense feeling of well-being and deep contentment um, that we experience um, because something we have longed for or earnestly desired has come to us. We've experienced this thing we've been longing for. So sometimes joy gets compared to happiness, Mm -hmm. which happiness is these more brief blips of experiences. And um, also it gets um, compared to pleasure, that pleasure is also um, a a good feeling, something we crave. But joy is actually um, not something you can pursue in and of itself, it's actually a gift of God. It is something that is given to us. It is um, it is the consequence of um, a pursuit of God. Um, I, I like to compare joy more to love, that both joy and love take delight in something or someone beyond themselves. 
Uh, and scripture links joy and love closely together because they're both gifts of God. So they're these rich gifts that God freely gives to us. So if you're looking for joy in your life and you are wanting to pursue it, I actually want to ask you to look at your desires. What is it that you desire the most? Um, Do those desires align with God? Do they help you connect with God? Because these rightly ordered desires end up producing joy. Because as we long for what God longs for, he reveals those to us. He brings those to us. He shows his work in creation, in the world around us, in our own character. Um, and then we get to experience that wonderful gift, that, that charisma of joy mm-hmm. that God gives. I think the psalmist says, take delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. I think that's, yeah. that, that sounds like joy to me, doesn't it? It does. But it's, you're aligning yourself with the desires of the Lord. You know, that's you're, right. you're going there first. And I think that joy is that place that in your in that vault inside your heart that nice. you can't penetrate, you can't get to. Circumstances in life is not going to corrupt that vault that has your joy in it. That's right. right. Yeah, it's one of those treasures yeah, exactly. of the faith, you know, held by Jesus Christ Himself. That's great. Well, John, I know Scripture is loaded with uh, references and passages with joy. Mm-hmm. I know you've got some to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. One of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit, just because it's so countercultural, is this idea that suffering in Scripture, you'll see it again and again, especially in the New Testament, that suffering and joy somehow go together. Now, this isn't a weird kind of masochism. I want to say (laughs) that we're not seeking out suffering. We don't have to in this world. Suffering will just come to you. But um, there is this linkage in um, scripture between suffering and joy. And um, I think there's a, there, there, are, there are lots of examples of this. I'll just give you, um, so Hebrews 12, which is this passage about Jesus himself, what he, um, kind of what motivated him in the midst of his suffering. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, who's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So he's the ultimate model of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So when you think about what kept Jesus on that cross, I mean, he could have called 10,000 angels, right? It, that, that, what kept him on that cross for our sake was this joy that was set before him, that he knew in, pers- in, in persevering here, in going through the suffering, there was going to be a new level of joy because of our, he could see ultimately our salvation, I think that vulnerability of the cross, that vulnerability of suffering creates an openness for joy because I think joy is one of the most vulnerable emotions we can experience. You can't make it happen. You can't cling to it. You can't make it stay. You have to kind of surrender yourself. You just have to be vulnerable when joy comes. You have to allow it to sink in. And you have to receive it. 
And suffering is that similar vulnerability. We're needy. We need God. We need something more than ourselves. So I think there's this really interesting linkage between suffering and joy because they're both rooted in this kind of vulnerability that makes us reliant on God, Mm -hmm. you know? I like talking about suffering and joy. It's an interesting (laughs) two words to have together because I... That's different from the crazy person that that invented the idea of runner's high, right? Because running, because running is nothing but pain. For some of us, there really is a high, but it always hits after you're done running. I'm yeah. like, that's the misnomer. Yeah. <laughs> when you're in the bathtub full of ice, that's what it's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think that um, that. I, in, in our world, happiness, um, in our world, pleasure is all rooted in these circumstances around us. And if we can control our circumstances, then we get to have pleasure and we get to have happiness. But because joy has this incredibly vulnerable gift-like quality mm-hmm. to it, as we pursue pleasure or we grasp onto happiness and set our sights on that, we actually end up decreasing our joy because joy is gift. It is, it is something that comes to us. And especially in scripture, it is tied for the believer. It is tied into our relationship with God. It is really something that you just have to surrender to. I like that, Jonna. <laughs> that it's just kind of a byproduct of obedience it's a byproduct of following Christ and surrendering to him that you're going to have this joy that you you can't contain and you can't even necessarily understand it. Yeah. So just even the way you phrase that, Bill, is perfect. Uh, John 15, verses 8 through 11, um, Jesus is kind of in his final conversation with his disciples uh, before he goes to the cross. And he says, he's telling them, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. So he wants them to know that this is what God wants. This is This is God's glory if they are able to have those fruits of the Spirit, if they are able to have fruitful ministry, good lives, and become my disciples. He goes on to say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things so that you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This sense of aligning ourselves with Jesus. So abiding in his love, obeying his commandments, living this deeply connected God life does bring a completeness to our joy. It's like the pathway between the joy of God um, and our hearts gets opened um, by that. So Jesus, even this is kind of one of the last things he was saying to his disciples Mm -hmm. is, You've got to know this, that as you obey my commands and as you abide in my love, even as through what you're about to go through, the most disorienting, horrific thing that you never think could have ever happened, like his death, my joy will be there. My joy will complete this process for you if you will abide in my love and keep my commandments. So I think you're exactly Mm. right that it is in this obedient, connected relationship with God that joy blossoms. Believers are very invested in that word joy, as we should be. Mm-hmm. You know, when people ask you, how are you doing? Our response should be joyful. Yeah. 
versus I'm doing pretty good. Right. How are you? Right. And it would be a counter, a different way of, yeah, kind yeah. of awakening a new conversation. But if you said joyful, they would go, why? <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And I think that's one of the, um, in our world, to be a joy-filled person is so winsome. It's so captivating and it calls forth the question because our world is so anxious and kind of fearful. And, um, and so to meet someone who has joy, uh, again, Rick Matz and I often talk about evangelism and we're like, we long for more joyful Christians, a more joyful community, because that just in and of itself asks, begs questions, and is a draw to people. Mm -hmm. When Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Are Christians characterized as people of good cheer? Right. I think that often, and and sometimes media is unkind to us, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to own that, but we often are seen as the frowners and the judgers and the people, you know, standing on the side with a grim look on our face, shaking our heads, you know. Um, and that is like the exact opposite of the Christ community that Jesus was forming. These disciples were so joyful we'll and excited. None of that in this studio. <laughs> none of that. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more with John Fonts. She's a worshiping community life pastor at Salem Covenant Church right here in New Brighton, Minnesota. We'll be right back. Back with Jonna Fonts, and we are talking about joy. Jonna is the uh, worship and community life pastor at Salem Covenant Church right here in the Twin Cities. And I love the topic of joy, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, Jonna, but let's talk about some of the joy killers. Mm. What are they? I mean, I feel like it's fairly obvious what happens out there, and you can just hear sort of the cultural milieu. So first of all, cynicism So that sense that whatever is good, there's something nasty underneath it. We're just waiting for that other shoe to fall. Cynicism is definitely a joy killer. Fear is a joy killer. And strangely, because fear is a lot about control. We feel like if we get scared and we get that adrenaline running in our bodies, that's actually what the emotion of fear was meant to do is give us some strength in a moment when we're about to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or something. Um, That fear gives us this feeling of control. And if I can be fearful enough, I can control. And you cannot control joy. Uh, Craving more. So that constant greed, hunger for more, um, contentment, um, obviously, is part of the definition of joy. So if you just uh, but like buy into all the commercials and really think you need more stuff and feel like there's just another thing you need, you're constantly craving more, that will kill your joy. And then like, like cynicism, suspicion, that kind of like looking out the corner of your eye, waiting that this, this is all going to go bad soon or someone's going to hurt me. Those, that kind of guardedness, that kind of shutdownness, those closed postures of heart and mind 
definitely snuff out joy in our lives and in our culture. That's a that's a good list. And it's uh, very convicting. It's a, well, it's a tough one because yeah. I think our culture just breathes it. We are a guarded people. We're kind of a frightened people right now. And so cynicism feels safer. Fear feels like that's just being realistic, right? And um, we're, we're trained in our culture from a very early age to start wanting stuff that that cult manufacturing desires so that we become consumers is just part of what our culture does to us. And yeah. so, yeah, there's a lot there to realize, wow, it's like, if you're, if you're joyful, you're actually like counter cultural <laughs> um, in, in this world that we're living in mm-hmm. right now. And if you have a tendency of, I don't know if this, if you're feeling this way at all, Jonna, mm-hmm. but the, the, the fear, the anxiety, some of the stuff that's going on in the world, has your fuse gotten shorter? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think, yeah, I, I always think that they they say that anger is a secondary emotion, that usually other stuff has happened first and that then it goes to anger. But yeah, the anger we see in our society mm-hmm. is fed by a lot of the, thing, the things that, that kill yeah. our joy. I'm, I'm embarrassed by how much shorter my already short fuse has gotten. <sighs> I had a short fuse to start with. <laughs> now it's gotten shorter, and it's embarrassing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This isn't a counseling session, though. No, no. no. But we're here um, to talk about joy. Yeah, yeah. That's I want right. more joy. That's right. Well, and to be honest, those experiences of, of joy um, help expand. Help take us out of those postures, those moments where, like I just today had one of these experiences as I was working on this and um, and I'm feeling a little nervous because I am solo with you, Bill, today and missing my partner, Rick, and uh, just had a, had a phone call came in, took it, and it was a really dear friend um, whom I haven't had a chance to talk to in a while. And I just decided, no, I just need to be present with this friend and we had this wonderful 45-minute conversation that my heart just was filled with joy. And I came back to the work I had to do with just a different heart, mm. more openness, less anxious, you know, ready to actually let this be a joyful experience. And that was just a grace given me. And I just had to let go of control a little bit, be a little open to what God was doing. And it can just turn, you know, turn your whole day. Like one of the things that I do love, KTIS does this pay it forward thing where you pay at the pay people's coffees. I hear people talk about that a lot. In the, and I just think of those as they're these moments, these little explosions of potential joy. It's like you're putting these little joy bombs out there that go off in people's lives. And if they're attentive, their day is going to be entirely different because they just received this wondrous gift and they can soak that in and let go of some of the fear and the anxiety and the anger that can just dominate our lives now. Yeah, I started this pay behind program where I get my coffee and I say, I'm pretty sure the guy behind me is going to pay. And I understand he's a big tipper. And then I drive away as fast as I can. I see. Well, yeah. I'll make sure. Now, which car do you have, Bill? <laughs> The very fast one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, and interestingly, when you think about, as we talk about sort of what, um, what kills joy, you talk about what kind of cultivates joy. And um, one of those is worship. Um, really giving ourselves over to recognizing God's goodness and offering our hearts to him in worship is an amazing clearing space that mm-hmm. allows joy to begin to be cultivated. Um, as I said, contentment to um, to actually walk into your house and not notice the things that need to be replaced or that are missing, to see what you have and to really be grateful for that and think this is good. What I have is really good. Um, my life is really good. That's just fertile ground for joy. Um, yeah. And then I would just say, and here's a, so I, I don't have children. So for all the parents staying up late with uh, newborn babies, I do apologize. I believe that children manufacture incredible amounts of joy. They don't have the cynicism we do. They see the world so differently from us. Spending time with children is often a source of, uh, yes, they're, they can be very tiring and taxing and demanding and a source of great joy. So I say, if you haven't been around kids for a while, you need to go to your church and volunteer (laughs) um, in the nursery or, uh, you know, greet kids in the lobby or, you know, um, try to be around children. I just think they have this wondrous ability to catch us off guard and make us joyful. 100% true. That's, uh, That's great. I love talking about joy. I think we... Do you ever pray for joy, or is that something that you don't ask the Lord for? No, well, I pray about joy. Okay, yeah. So, like I said, I think during I'm a I'm a raging extrovert, and uh, COVID was rough. I, you know, my church kind of closed down, and I was working from home by myself. And and as we're emerging now, I, you know, I I just knew that was going to be a tough time. But I feel like my joy level hasn't come completely back, and so I'm asking God about that. I'm saying to God, what's going on? Um, hmm. What What's missing? Because if I'm connected to you and I'm living the life you created me to live, then I should be experiencing joy. You know, that that should be a product of, of this life. And um, one of the things that I would just invite you, if you are kind of feeling like, geez, I need a little more, little more joy, I might encourage you to think about what you desire most right now. Maybe even do a little list. Write those down. What are your biggest desires? Pray about those and try to notice, Do those are those God-connecting desires? Because maybe you've got some misaligned desires, and that's leading to your joy being drained off. Mm-hmm. Good topic, good discussion. Really nice to have you here. Thank you for uh, being a guest. That was so sweet to be with you, Val. Yeah, John Afonso has been my guest. We've been talking about joy. And if you missed any of this, you're going to want to go back and hear it again because it's uh, it's very joyful from what I remember. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, Rob Bisher is going to join me. He's the dean of the law school at St. Thomas. And I love talking to lawyers where I don't have to pay. So we'll be right back.
And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. It's so nice to have uh, Rob Vischer back on the program as my final guest of the day. He got his uh, Bachelor of Arts at the University of North uh, New Orleans. Then he went to Harvard Law School. And then he was a professor of law at St. John's University. And today he's the dean of the School of Law at the University of St. Thomas. Always nice to have him on the program. Rob, welcome back. Great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And how was your year? Well, like everybody else's year, it was uh, an adventure that rewarded uh, <laughs> perseverance and resilience. But we managed to uh, to stay in person uh, for most of the year, and uh, you know, lots of face shields and masks. And uh, but we did it, and uh, we're we're looking forward to a a more normal fall. That's for sure. Yeah. And what are, what do you do as dean of the law school during the summer? Uh, during the summer, well, there, as you can imagine, there are a lot of year-end reports, yeah, and uh, I'm sure. I, I do about 30 annual reviews. So we have, <laughs> there's no shortage of meetings and, and paper to fill out. Yeah. And are you a meetings person? Do you do pretty well in meetings? Uh, I do. I do well in meetings as long as I have a strong sense of where we're headed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If it if I feel like I have suddenly uh, dropped into a meeting that is in search of an agenda, then I get <laughs> restless very quickly. Yeah. Well, there there's so much I'd love to chat with you about today, and I, I know that you can talk about really anything relative to law and what's going on in the world. Um, I'm curious if you um, would be willing to talk about some of the, the, the racial justice from a Christian perspective. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's a it's such a hard issue yeah. uh, because we all bring our own lenses to the issue. And so, um, you know, I work in downtown Minneapolis and I live uh, in the city and even even discussions about crime and public safety are are hard because they tap into fears that are also wrapped up with our social identity. I mean, it's so our conversations about race, like our conversations about politics more broadly, we, we have to, I think we have to step back, especially as Christians and understand what we're really talking about. And we're talking about ways that we feel like we belong or we don't belong. And sometimes we try to approach these things as simply sort of freestanding, rational debate topics, but they really tap into to deeper issues. You know, one of the there's a book that uh, I read recently that I recommend. It's by. Uh, it's not written from a Christian perspective, but there's a lot of sociological data in in it. It's uh, by Ezra Klein. It's called Why We're Polarized. And one of the things he talks about in uh, reviewing lots of studies is what what we are driven by in these debates is less about who's right on a particular issue and more about strengthening our sense of belonging to the group that matters to us. Mm. And so why that's become so much more complicated is because we've sliced and diced the world in new ways going from, you know, we can, we can draw the voting districts in advantageous ways that make sure that we're surrounded by people who think like us, live like us, act like us, vote us, vote like us. We, we tend to gravitate toward, uh, areas of the country and areas of a metro area with people who who think look act like us we 
tend to be drawn to cable news stations that reinforce the things we already uh, think we believe. Even retailers market to us based on those views. It's all been sliced and diced. And so when an issue comes to us, whether subconscious or consciously, we are making sure that we are staying aligned with our people. <laughs> and <laughs> and it becomes more about us versus them. And so, you know, when we when I'm talking about race or I'm talking about whatever the political issue of the day is, what I hope that folks take time to reflect on is whatever your position is on an issue, are you approaching it in a way that doesn't feed into this us versus them mindset? Hmm. And we're, we're battling against some pretty strong cultural forces when we do that, but you know, Christianity is supposed to be countercultural. And so when we talk about racial justice or whatever Whatever umbrella we're putting over, whether it's racial justice or, you know, people are talking more and more about critical race theory, about all of those related issues. That's my premise is let's try to engage anybody who has a view on this through a lens that is shaped by the love of Jesus as much or more than the lens that is shaped by our day-to-day -day experience living and working in the metro area or what we just watched on the cable news last night or what we've been reading on Facebook or what, how, how does that look different? And these days I'm more focused on our stance toward these issues than I am on the content of the view regarding the issues because I think that will make all the difference. Oh, Rob, that's so wise. Thank you for that. Um, that was it. That was really well said. I'm thinking about the way we're dividing people into racial groups and almost, you know, we're almost putting them, like, pitting them against each other. And that's not really bringing, bringing about any unification, is it? Well, yeah, it's a, it's an excellent question. And where if we're going to talk about racial justice, where I always want to start the conversation is making sure we have a, a full and mutual understanding of our history rather than what side are you on in this current debate, which mm -hmm. of course will divide people because we have different views on the current debate. And so let's take an example. There was an article in uh, the Star Tribune this morning. I don't know if you saw it, but it it was uh, talking about a new study that found that the disparities in home ownership among between black uh residents of the Twin Cities and white residents of the Twin Cities is wider than in any city in the country right now. And fewer than 20% of black residents in the Twin Cities own their own homes. And so if you, if you take that fact and then you work back from it and say, how did we get here? And you can go back partly to, you know, redlining that occurred, you know, that that uh, occurred over a period of, of at least, you know, 40, 50 years mm -hmm. in the early 20th century uh, in the Twin Cities and steering by realtors, which was common practice up through the 60s, to uh, even more recently where you had uh, coming out of the Great Recession, you had um, 
companies and investors going in and buying up hundreds and hundreds of houses in North Minneapolis that had gone into foreclosure and that, uh, you know, based on the on the mortgage practices that were in place at that time. And so for all these factors, you now have a situation where there are stark differences between the races in terms of a major generator of household and intergenerational wealth, right? So white families will tend to finance college education, have uh, intergenerational inheritances, fund retirements in significant part through the home equity they build up. That does not uh, apply in equal measure to black families, and we can't understand why that happened if we don't understand history. So once we get an understanding of history, we have an accurate factual snapshot of where we are right now. Now let's have the conversation. And I don't really care what label you want to attach to it, right? If you want to say it's structural or systemic racism, that's fine. If you don't like those terms, that's fine. Let's break it down and let's just talk about how can we grow home ownership among black families in the Twin Cities. Let's just put it in those terms, and now let's brainstorm ideas and try to come together uh, around specific ideas for solutions, And which feeds into a broader point, I would say. I think uh, for Christians, what Christians have this concept. It's in Catholic social teaching. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. It's called civil friendship. And what civil friendship stands for is that when we are engaged in civic affairs, we should actually be building relationships, a collaboration between citizens for the betterment of the community, right? That's very hard to do if our exclusive focus is on what our opinion is of the president of the United States, if that's what we identify as political engagement, do we hate or love whoever happens to be president of the United States at this point? That's not a foundation for civil friendship. So when, whether we're talking about race or whether we're talking about other contentious issues, I would like us more, especially Christians, to spend a little bit less time focused at the 10,000-foot level, at the national issue that people are weighing in on Facebook or Twitter or through you know, cable news, and more on the local issue, because when we are focused on, hmm, could we join a project to beautify this local park or to support an after-school uh, kids program, that not only betters our community, that's the foundation for building friendships through our political engagement. And I would say it's the same thing for racial uh, justice issues. If you, if you move away from this question, well, do you think critical race theory is good or do you think critical race theory is bad? And say, whatever, you, whatever your view on that is, I, you know, that's fine, but let's move away from that and let's talk about in the Twin Cities – how can we increase the percentage of black families who own their own homes? Let's have that brainstorming session, and then let's work together in practical ways to move forward on that. So that's kind of how I view where the conversation needs to go. One, approaching it not in the us versus them mindset, but two, 
thinking practically and locally, spending less time on what labels we like or what labels we don't like, and less time at the national 10,000-foot level where we're just sort of shouting into the storm about our opinions, and more at the grassroots level and saying, okay, we all recognize we have a problem. Now let's talk about solutions. And we're not all going to agree on the solutions, but I think we'll have more fertile ground for agreeing on solutions when we stick to the local and we stick to the specific challenges as opposed to these sweeping universal declarations of what we stand for or against. Rob, you're kind of being solutions oriented here. You're making way too much sense. <laughs> you you uh, used a, you used a term and I've already forgotten it because I've been so mesmerized by your answer, but it was civil something, civil what? C- Civil friendship. Civil friendship. That is so profound. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it goes back to Aristotle, and it's this notion that, 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 the, um, that the political community is a partnership of the citizens, and the partnership's aim is to allow citizens to achieve virtue and happiness, mm. and our local communities are where those partnerships are most likely to bear fruit. So it's not just that the local is Im- important because we can get stuff done, although we can, but the local is the path to relationship, right? So it's the local is where we can say, you know what, we may not agree on abortion or same-sex marriage or immigration policy, but you know what, we can still work together on launching this local nonprofit for at-risk kids or working on this initiative with the school board or that's the path to relationship. And I think in every in everything we do, Christians are called to relationship. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not – yes, it's good to succeed and to have impact and to have demonstrable outcomes to our labors, but in all of it, we're called to relationship. We're called to reflect God's love for neighbor, and and we don't do that simply through, oh, we won. <laughs> we do that through relationships that are formed through our political engagement. Rob, if I were to summarize the first 12 minutes of our conversation, tell me how I'm doing. Love one another. (laughs) That is pretty good. Did that summarize it? Love one another, which, which requires us to remember that it's very hard to love from a standpoint of fear. And there are a lot of entities in our world that count on us being afraid because that's what's going to make us click on this link and that's what's going to make us tune into this. And and sometimes, especially over the past 15 months, it's been hard not to be afraid at various mm-hmm. times, but we're called, you know, I don't have to tell you how many times Scripture Scripture says, be not afraid. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prudent or that we shouldn't take advice on protecting ourselves and our family, but it, it, it means that our basic standpoint vis-a-vis the rest of the world can't be one of fear, because when we are afraid, it's very hard to love one another. Yeah. Rob, I, I am needing to take a short break, but I'll be right back. Uh, Rob Fisher is my guest. He's the dean at the School of Law at the University of St. Thomas. We'll be right back.
I'm back with Rob Fisher. He's dean of the School of Law at the University of St. Thomas. Always glad to have him on the program. It's been a while since he's been on, so it's nice to hear his voice again and get his wisdom. You know, Rob, I was thinking during the break, there's so much uh, polarization. And when you're talking about the lens with which we should look through, there there is divided camps. There are ways in which people put other people in categories very quickly. And we we lose a sense of how we are supposed to love one another. Yeah, and it's it's hard because I think <laughs> there's more and more in our society that functions as obstacles to the cultivation of empathy. Yes. <laughs> right. Oh, well said. Where, where we're 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 drawn to you know just find comfort with the people who are like us and view those who are not like us as the enemy, the threat. And part of that's just how our society functions. And and what are the opportunities we have to really engage and get to know people who are very different from us? I think that's absolutely vital to the Christian life, whether it's, you know, whether you're fortunate enough to attend a church that has a lot of diversity or work in a setting with a lot of diversity or maybe a neighborhood, although that's rarer and rarer. Um, but I do think we are obliged because we are called, as you said, to love one another, we are also obliged to cultivate our own capacity for empathy by connecting with those who view the world differently and have different life experiences. And so just, you know, an obvious example in my own family, I think, as in most families, I have relatives who see the world very differently than I do, politically especially. And it's important that I stay in close relationship with those people because when these issues come up or there's the, you know, big grand disputes and debates, it's important that I view those who disagree with me not as the nameless, faceless other, (laughs) but as my specific beloved relative. Mm -hmm. And how am I going to engage this person who disagrees with me? Well, how would I engage my specific beloved relative on issues that separate us, right, with love? And it's much easier to do that when you know the person, when you know their story, when you're you're walking alongside them. But what if, if we cut ourselves off from any sources of relationship that stretch us beyond our comfort zone, we're cutting ourselves off from from empathy. So part of this is how do we how do we do life where we're consistently being pushed out of our comfort zone and connected with people who may have diametrically opposing views of the world than we do? Yeah, that's beautifully stated. We need to hear other people's stories and listen. Uh, it seems that we get into this habit of carrying on parallel monologues. I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can start talking. Yeah. I'm not, right. really, yeah, I'm not really listening. Absolutely key. Where where it's relationships for the sake of getting to know the other person, period. <laughs> not not getting to know them so that you have a chance to persuade them that you're right. 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 It, and and maybe maybe something will happen in your relationship where they do change their minds or you do change your mind. But but the 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 goal is relationship, not persuasion. Right. And so you you have to enter into it with that mindset that this is a child of God who you are privileged to uh, uh, have an encounter with. And how do you steward that privilege wisely for the sake of the relationship? Yeah, I I agree completely. I'm I'm so um, feeling 
prompted and also reminded and a little bit um, convicted of the idea that I need to spend more time reaching out, listening, hearing people's stories. I talk about it on, on the air, but I'm trying to figure out how well I'm doing it personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's it's a it's a challenge for uh, most of us. I think just the just the way our lives are are designed and set up. Yeah, I mean, you've got your family, Rob, and you've got you know your your circle of close friends, and then you've got all of your business colleagues, and then you're trying to figure out where you've got extra margin to reach out and 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 have those connections with new people, especially ones that you may not be agreeing with, and that's yeah. where God calls us, right? Yeah, and and then here, getting back to your uh, earlier question about race, whatever our view on on policies regarding race now, it's important for me to recognize, for example, I live in southwest Minneapolis. So many of the, the houses in my neighborhood had restricted covenants for much of the 20th century, wow. meaning that they could not be sold to non-white purchasers. So the fact that my neighborhood is overwhelmingly white now is not just a historical accident. It was an intentional policy put into place. And so part of my struggle to make sure that I'm connecting with those who don't look like me and who, you know, may not vote like me and have different life experiences and come from different ethnic backgrounds or different nationalities. Part of my struggle to do that is a consequence of decisions that were made many years ago that my neighborhood was going to be white by design. And so, again, people don't have to agree on what the remedy for that is, but I think it's important that some of the decisions that have been made in the past themselves diminish our capacity for empathy because they reflected this sense of, no, no, we need to stay with our tribe. We need <laughs> to be with people who are like us. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we're paying the price for that now. We're separated from others, and it, it feeds into this us versus them mindset. So, And whether you want to call it structural racism or inequity or whatever it is. I don't even care what the labels are. It's just noting the history and how that has cost us today in our own ability to flourish in God's creation. Yeah. Rob, we just have a couple of minutes left. Would you give me your take on the on the word systemic racism? When you hear that, what do you yeah. what do you think? What does so your legal what, mind think? Yeah. So what I'm what I focus on if I hear that word is that it that that the consequences of racism are not simply borne out in individual attitudes right mm-hmm. so so i may and my all my neighbors may in 2021 have absolutely no hostility or resistance to say inviting uh, a black coworker or colleague over for dinner, whereas a hundred years ago that might have been very different. But the systemic part comes in, saying that's great that attitudes have improved, and they have. They absolutely have. Survey data shows that attitudes about race have improved, but you still have some of these systems that have far-reaching consequences, such as the residential segregation of races that continues today, the the barriers 
to black home ownership that have persisted across generations, even though formally a lot of those obstacles have been lifted. So Mm -hmm. it's trying to get to this question, great, we've improved our attitudes, but we still have these bigger things in place that are that are uh, exacerbating racial disparities, and we need to talk about it. And what label we want to use for that, you know, let's make up a new label, whatever we want to use. But it's getting beyond that individual attitude to bigger society-wide issues, if that makes sense. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I I know how busy you are, and I know um, this is probably the dinner hour and you're ready to go eat. So thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. I'm always glad to to be here, and uh, thanks for engaging important conversations. You bet. Rob Bishop has been my guest, Dean of the School of Law at the University of St. Thomas. That's all the show we have for this day, but uh, there's lots more coming up tomorrow. And thank you for listening to Faith Radio, and uh, thank you for supporting us, caring about us. We'll um, see you tomorrow. Have a great night. God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.